On behalf of Jim Howard, who is our senior pastor and not here, um, I send greetings and uh, bring greetings, I guess is the right way to put it. He's up at uh, the Eagle Project that he is on their board. He's at a weekend board meeting today, so uh, he would love to be here, but he's probably fine with taking a weekend off. That's That's a good thing. How many of you got to see the Lion King Jr.? Is this thing amazing? If you, uh, let's see, how many of you have kids in the Lion King Jr.? I know Jim Anderson's back there. Yep, Confers. Actually, Dave's out in the. We have like 20 children. I say children because they're younger than me. Of course, that's most of you as well. But uh, they're 20, something like that, of our kids. I didn't count them all up, but it's an amazing experience. If you get any chance, to make it over to Breckenridge today, either at 2 o'clock or 6 o'clock. I don't usually you know, make a big deal about the, the shows in the county or what have you, but you can't even believe how many of our kids are involved and how stinking talented they are. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Super fun show. Probably the oldest one is like 12 or 13, uh, uh, as far as the age that put on this entire thing. There's a cast of a million up there. I just want to encourage you, but also if you uh, hear about or see any piece of it, encourage our kids in that. This, of course, as the, actually the, the music pastor, I'm pretty excited about our future for, for our music teams because we have so many amazing kiddos out there, and that's a great thing. So I just want to encourage you with that if you get a chance. Now today we're going to cover a lot of ground. I I tend to do this anyways, but you can't even believe how much ground I want to cover today. So I want to get into it. Get a Bible out from the chairs in front of you, unless you have one on your personal electronic device, as most people do. And we're going to look at this ongoing idea of trouble brewing. Hey, Ann, put that first picture up. Pull the lights down a little bit. Put that first picture. See that? Now, what's, you see the dog. Do you know what the black thing is? That's a cat's tail. Now, that title says the calm before the storm. It's basically a trouble brewing. It's the same idea because if that dog gets a hold of that tail, it's going to be fun, right? You, there's no way to predict. It's almost like the dog who catches the car. Like, what's he going to do now? And uh, we're in a series right here. Thanks, Ann. You can pull those lights back up for everybody and and uh, put that next slide up. We're in a series where we're talking about this idea of trouble brewing. The whole concept, stick with me here, because there's always these convoluted stories doing this together, and God is in the background accomplishing all kinds of things. That's the good news. I want you to hold on, relax a little bit for that, and be certain that God accomplishes all kinds of things. But today we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to move along. We're literally skimming across the tops of the waves. So if you follow with me, fine. If you can't follow with me, maybe even just uh, sit back and listen as we skip along. Here's what I want you to be listening for. First of all, listen for some details of issues, uh, problems, things that are happening that are obviously going to cause trouble later. And listen for some things that are related to leadership, like what in the world happened here? Let me give you this first description. In chapter 3, the Bible says of David that at the, at the, all of the people took note and were pleased, and indeed everything that the king did pleased them. 
David has their hearts. We go a couple decades later and just a few chapters, about 12 chapters, and it says this of his son Absalom, the hearts of the men of Israel were all sided with Absalom, David's son. Now that seems plausible because it's not uncommon for the king in succession to have his son step in. But now we go just a a couple of months forward from that into chapter 19, and it says again of David, he won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man. So you've got to ask yourself, what in the world happened in leadership? Something went wrong. Something went awry. So follow along with me here. We're going to chapter 1, verse 1, and this opens the scene. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag two days. This is a big deal. It says down in in verse 4, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. This changes the whole thing for David. You know that because he's been anointed king, and now the king that was in his way is gone. So we kind of take off. David appropriately mourns him. And in chapter 2, it says that he goes then, and he asks the Lord, verse 1, in the course of time, this is one of these transitions, you'll see some meanwhile, some afters, some when, some in the course of times, that are talking about what's going on in the background, some of the trouble brewing. It says this, he went to the Lord and said, what should I do? Should I go up to one of the towns of Judah from the town where he was in Ziklag? And God said, yeah, go to Hebron. So David went to Hebron. And David then where, went there with how many wives? Two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. And so there he goes. He's got two wives. He's moving forward. And verse 4, that he's anointed David king over the house of all of Judah. But down in verse 8, meanwhile, Abner son of Ner, the general of Saul who is working with David, Saul and Jonathan, now grabs Saul's son, uh, Ishbosheth, and makes him the king. So David's got a rival going on. There's some trouble brewing there, right? Turn over to chapter 3. And the war goes on between Saul's house and David's house. David gains in strength. Saul grows weaker. Now look at this interesting verse 2. Sons were born to David in Hebron. The first was Amnon of Ahinoam and Kiliab, son of Abigail. We've heard about them, but now look. Absalom, son of Maacah, Adonijah, son of Hagith, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and Ithriam, son of Eglah. How many wives does he have now? Six. In a very, very short period of time. Does anybody else see trouble in that? Or is that just me? I've got one, and she knows I'm not very good at being a husband to one. She can confirm that. Six? I wouldn't have a chance. And meanwhile, underneath, Abner says, You know what? I'm getting tired of this king Ishbosheth. I think I'm going to try to conspire to make sure that the whole kingdom, even the north and the south, goes over to David. So they put together an entire arrangement, and in it, David says, you know what? I was married to a wife before. Her name is Michal. She's one of the daughters of Saul, the the sister of my great-great friend Jonathan. And so in this exchange, I want that wife back. Now the problem is, Michal has married someone else, Paul Teal, and built a whole family with him. And David says, I guess the six ain't enough. So I need a seventh wife. And that goes on in, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 14. Give me my wife, Michael. 
uh, Michal, and I paid for her with a hundred Philistine foreskins. I'm sure the Philistines were very happy about that and part of that deal. And so it moves on, and we, De- Joab in the meanwhile murders Abner the general. This goes on. Ishbosheth in chapter 4 is killed. He's the rival king. Now that guy's out of the way. Chapter 5, verse 1 All the tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron and make him king. So there now it seems like everything's going well. Verse 13 of chapter 5 After he left Hebron, David to go to Jerusalem, he took his wives and concubines with him. How many? We don't even know. And then there's a whole shopping list of children that are born to him. We don't even know how many David's got going on. Now you may be saying that doesn't seem like a big deal because all the kings in the ancient Near East did that. You're right. The difference is in Deuteronomy when Moses had said one day there will be a king, God said very clearly, do not take for yourselves many wives because they will lead your heart astray. There was a clear commandment against this. And David knew the Shema that we read, and David knew the laws of, of uh, Moses. You can be sure of that. But he ignored it. So we move on. Up in, uh, in chapter 6, David brings the ark back. You know this whole story. Michal watches him dancing in. She despises him in, his heart, in her heart only because of the dancing. I doubt it. She probably despises him because she's been stolen away from her family. And she never has any kids and she's never a happy woman in his house, probably for the rest of her life. So that's a good arrangement. So then we go to chapter 7, and David gets the amazing, the, one of the most amazing covenants that God builds between him and men in all of human history. It happens in chapter 7. Now you say, well, what has David done so far to, to deserve this? Probably not a lot, but he's the king. He's the anointed king. And God sees something different in David than he saw in Saul. And so God makes a pact with his entire family for the rest of his, for generations to come. It's an amazing experience, literally the highlight. And then if you think there's not any trouble brewing, David keeps winning battles. Do you know in the, in the entire book of 1 Samuel, Joab, David's general, is never listed as ever being defeated, ever. Ever. No matter who they fought. So he's got this great covenant. He's got all these wives and kids. He's moved up to Jerusalem, and they're winning every battle they can fight. Does that sound like things should be going really, really well? Of course. Then we get to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings usually go off to war, David sent his armies to battle. And you know this whole story of Bathsheba. Now what a lot of people don't realize is that Bathsheba was not just some random girl. When David asked the question, isn't that Bathsheba, he specifies, isn't that her, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? You know who Eliam is? Eliam is one of David's great generals who is out with the battles right now going on. That's her father. And Uriah is one of his great leaders who's off in the battle. That's her husband. Both of them are listed at the end of this book as one of the mighty men of valor in David's closest companionship. And he takes their woman. Treachery. Did he not have enough wives? Right? Trouble brewing. You know the whole deal with Nathan where Nathan, God basically turns around the sense 
And God sends Nathan to him and changes that. Meanwhile, they win the battle, which is unbelievable. And then in 13, I don't know what the title is on that Bible, but mine says, Turmoil in David's Family. That is an understatement of what we're going to see here. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, by one of those wives, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom. Tamar and Absalom are kids of a different wife, so this is a half-sister. He falls in love with her. You know this whole story. Actually, David sends Tamar in on the ruse of Amnon, sets her up for her own rape. And it says, after Amnon has raped her, that Amnon despised her with more despite than he had ever loved her when he loved her. This is David's family. And this is going along. And eventually, a couple years passed, Absalom... Another prince is watching this brewing going on. David does nothing about Amnon, and so Absalom kills, sets up, sets a trap for, and kills Amnon. David is watching. You see nothing. Amnon runs to their home where her, their mother was from and goes to say there, excuse me, Absalom does that. And now in chapter 14, Joab conspires to bring Absalom back because Joab knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So he brings him back to the city. He's in this little town. If I could describe Jerusalem to you in the way of size, it's about the size of of Frisco. So his son, who's been gone for a couple of years now, hiding Absalom after he's killed his other brother Amnon, comes back to town, and David doesn't even talk to him for years. Doesn't even say a word to him. Won't even have have an audience with him. And finally, Absalom says, I can't take this anymore to Joab. So Joab conspires and puts it together so that Absalom gets to go in and see the king, but the king just receives him, and then there's no evidence that he talks to him about anything that happened. And then in chapter 15, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him, and he starts in a process of building the people's hearts. Remember we read this towards Absalom. And we get into verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of all of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David does what? He says, we got to flee. So he leaves, leaves, starts describing his son as King Absalom. Absalom chases him down to kill him. In the process, you know the story, Absalom gets his head caught in a tree while he's riding through the forest A guy notices, tells Joab, David's general, Joab goes out, beats him out of the tree, and his men finish him off on the ground and kills David's son, whom David had said, please be kind to my son Absalom. And then we get to verse, uh, in the middle of chapter 18, I will not kill this. I would not have killed this son. I'm not going to wait for you. I'm going to kill him. So verse chapter 19 says, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. The whole army that day, the victory that had been won was turned into mourning because the king was grieving. And Joab goes into him in verse 5 and says, what are you doing? Today you have humiliated all of your men. You've just saved your life. They just saved your sons and daughters' lives and everybody else from your son who is rebelling against you. What is up with you? You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. And meanwhile... In uh, verse 8, the Israelites fled to their homes. And then after some time, verse 14, he won over the hearts of all the men of Judah again as if they were one man. 
Now, what issues do you see in there? Seriously, give me some feedback right now. What's going on in all of that that you just heard? That was a, I know, a lot, fast. What would you hear? What are the problems, the issues? Denial. Denial, yeah. David's not doing a thing. What else do you hear? Yeah, deception. There's all kinds of deception. I didn't even give you a smidgen of what his most trusted general, Joab, did in deception all along the journey. What else do you hear? Disobedience, for sure. What else? Greed? Yeah. Like, what, what does he need with all these women? Pride. Jealousy. Here's what I hear everywhere, and this is the point today. What I hear everywhere in this story is undermining. Undermining going on everywhere. Ann, would you put those pictures up? Those next, at least the first one. See what, that's, what that is there? Maybe bring those lights down a little bit. That's a truck in a place where there should be a road. If you could see it better, the top, the roof of the, the truck has a big chunk of asphalt setting on top of it. When I was out in California for a while, Jenny and I were out there, they had a hundred-year rain in the Chocolate Mountains, and it, washed, it ruined this road, and I thought, man, i got to see this. So I took my, my mountain bike, and I pedaled out there to see. There were whole sections, sometimes for eight, ten feet, where the asphalt was perfect. It looked just fine, but there's nothing underneath it. It all just washed out. Yeah, see how that looks? Now, if you were up on the road, that looks like, well, there's no big deal there. But look how the edge of that is, if you drive too close to that edge, you got a problem. So there's two points that you can take away from this. First of all, any roadway that is built on sand is vulnerable, right? I mean, you think of Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, build a house on sand, bad idea, Right? Second point is this, looks can be very deceiving. Looks can be very deceiving. Things can look like they're just fine when indeed they're not at all. And that's what's happening in David's life. Now I want you to think about two specific things. I want you to think about undermining in relationship to things around you in your, your experience. And I want you to think about undermining caused by you today. You won't hear very many sermons like this. I don't know why that is true, but this context gives us a great opportunity to talk to us, talk about this a little bit. First of all, uh, around you. David's family, you saw what a mess it was. You heard the story of those wives. You can only imagine. Anybody want to be David's wife after hearing that fly over? I don't think anybody would. And yet, he's God's great king, right? And so in his family, he does what? What is David's response? If you read all of those, his response is to do absolutely nothing. Now, David had learned that in the Saul situation. He said, that's God's anointed. I am not going to move against God's anointed. And so it was a righteous do nothing and flee. But the problem is, when David became the anointed, given the full weight of the responsibility of the kingship, he still kept acting that way. Do nothing, 
put your head in the sand and flee. That's a problem. I have to ask this question. What in the world was going on with everybody around him? You know Jonathan was probably his greatest advisor ever in his history. What happened after Jonathan? Why didn't God, you know, David still had some advisors. He didn't really trust them. He never trusted, he whined about Joab, who, by the way, was his nephew, his sister's son, those three kids. He whined about Joab the entire time and finally had him executed at the Adonijah event at the end of this book because he couldn't take it anymore, could not trust this man. What had happened to David's network of trust, trustworthy people? What's your network of trustworthy people like? When it comes to your family, if your family was, I can relate to this, your family is falling apart underneath you, and you don't know about it, or worse, you know about it and you do nothing? Paralysis of analysis? How would we defend that? How would David defend this? It's worth us asking and stopping and say, look, is there any kind of a, of a framework that is providing some feedback to me? Now you say, well, I'm sure you're doing this in your mind right now. Who do I have? Is there anybody I trust well enough? Even if they give you some feedback about you, are they really willing to look at your family and tell you what they see? Have you asked anybody this question lately? What are people saying about me behind my back? Do you have the courage to ask that question? Because you know what we all do. We all hear the stuff. We keep it over here, off-grid. We don't take it back to the person because we don't want to, I don't know, hurt their feelings, whatever all the thousand reasons are that we have. Things just stay exactly where they are. How many opportunities had David had to actually make a better decision? Did he have feedback? Is it possible that a church could be a culture of feedback for you? Let me give you there's some interesting, very unique things about a church. It can be problematic if you don't trust it. If you don't trust your church, wherever your church is, go away and find another one that you can trust. If you do trust your church, lean in hard. Those people are not your family. They don't have the same things at stake. They have the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, find the ones who do that you can trust. Lean into them. And allow them to speak as they watch and see. And you know what it would be like if we all did that for each other? This is not less. This is far more than what we experience right now. By the way, it's never too late to do anything about that, but you should move slowly. Don't walk into your family tomorrow and say, okay, there's accountability going on everywhere. Okay, that's not going to work. It's got to be a slow motion because you're building trust. You're not building accountability. There's a huge difference. Accountability does not ultimately help. It usually just creates legalism and drives people away. Trust is helpful because people will be loyal. It builds loyalty and they will die for each other. Now, that takes us to the more personal question, which is, 
what about you? Have you been a part of undermining in contexts of leadership in which you find yourself? Are you even a little bit like Absalom? <laughs> Absalom started out, by the way, with very good intentions. I think he probably honored his dad. I think he saw himself that dad probably wanted him to have the kingdom. But little by little, if you read all the details in that story, Absalom starts kind of saying to people, hey, you have my trust, you have my trust. And by the way, if I was the king, hear that? He starts off, as a little disappointed in his dad, then he's discouraged, then he's disenfranchised, then he's disgruntled, and eventually he just flat out goes to disobedience. He turns it all around and says, my dad is worthy of death. How is this usually framed, by the way? Every time I've experienced it anywhere, it's always in the name of God, God's kingdom, it's got scriptural backing, and it's for the people's best. Every time I've experienced it, it's always in light of saying, well, this is what should happen. Think of our political scenario. A, has there ever been a good leader in there? It doesn't matter what the political scenario is. Any idiot can find things to complain about because that person doesn't actually run the world that person, is if they move the needle an eighth of one percent in an entire career, they're happy with that. The reality is, that person has almost no impact on, on it, and it's us, the culture, the context that is actually driving the ship. That happened even in the great kingships in the past, the great monarchies. It happened in David's context. So only you know if you are undermining in your government, in your company, your job, in your church. Only you know that. Really. Only you. Now, I know what we do. We ask this question. So how do we know our, our uh, leader is trustworthy? We have a good leader. How, we, how do we know that? I'm going to make it very simple for you. Only God knows for sure, and He's not telling that's the summary of an entire book, Tale of Three Kings, that is the wrap-up of this entire story, Saul, David, and Absalom, by Gene Edwards. It's spectacular. The best thing on leadership I've ever read because it gave me the realization of we all think we can identify who's a good leader, what's got it, who's got it going on, who's really doing a good job, where, where are their motives, and how great they have the right things in mind. We don't have any idea what's happening. If you compare the stories, if you've been coming to Iron Hour lately, we have compared the story of David to Saul. I'm going to tell you David was far more treacherous and problematic in his story than Saul ever was on a practical level. But God saw them very differently. God said to Saul at the beginning when he took the kingdom away from him after the Amalekite incident, he said, I'm going to take it away from you and put it in the hands of a man who is after my own heart. David. There is very little evidence in David's life that he was after God's own heart, but God knew him. 
So asking the question, here's the fascinating thing, asking the question, do we have a righteous leader? Do we have the right leader? Is this a good leader? That's not even the point on any way, shape, or form. It's not about the leader. God's kingdom is God's business. It's not the leader's kingdom. If I could say something nine times and have it stick in your head, it is that. This is not the leader's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. Romans 13, how many times did it say? Six times in Romans 13. It says God has established those who are in leadership over us. And he's talking physical government. So pay your taxes. Do what you should do. Live righteously. Be a good citizen. Do you know what the context was Paul was speaking to? The people who are in Israel are under the Herods. They were terrible leaders. Madmen. And the people who are in the Roman Empire are under the Caesars, and the Caesars in Paul's time were like Nero and horrible leaders. They were terrible leaders. Paul is in no way, shape, or form defending the leader. He's defending God. If you undermine, you don't undermine the leader. You undermine the Father. That's the bottom line. So you say, well, well, then why should I trust and support? Shouldn't I even just be kind of... Now, this is American thinking. You're expecting me to defend the American system. I'm not going to do it. But the American thinking is, well, we've got a voice. We've got to do something. Yes, you do. But you do it in the context of earned trust and support, not in gripe, complaint, whining, and thinking the next guy is going to be any better. Did you connect to that at all? We, we really believe somehow this next guy, whoever the next guy is, or the next gal, or it doesn't matter if it's a local leader, if it's a mayor in a town, if it's the school board director, if it's the president of the United States, we actually somehow believe the next person is going to be better. That's not the point. We earn the trust and support the capacity to be a, a voice by being trusting and supporting. You don't earn it by undermining the leadership. It's a very simple process because the kingdom's not theirs. I tried to say that three ways, different ways. And the final good news, like why would we even look at this story? <laughs> I get that. you got trouble brewing. You know there's trouble brewing. And you, you can say, man, this is a tragedy at every level. There's tragedy written all over this. But here's the beauty of it. There's good news in this. First of all, God is accomplishing getting the kingdom where he actually wants it. He's accomplishing that. By the way... He responds to the kings, but he almost always is responsive more to the culture of the people as to what he's going to do. God did not put Israel and Judah off into, well, Israel, he basically got rid of them. They went to Assyria, but they never came back. Judah went to Babylon, they came back. God did not put them into exile because of the kings primarily. He did it because of the culture of the people. You read the prophets. The final good news is this, though, is that God says, I'm going to see you through the lenses that I choose to look at you through. Later in the story in 1 Kings, as we're advancing along a little bit, there's another king who is uh, not a good king. 
And the prophet comes to him, Ahijah, and he says, you know, I'm going to give you a comparison point to your kingship. And the comparison point is what God has said about David. Now let me give you the God's summary of David. My servant David kept my commands, followed me with all of his heart, and he did only what was right in my eyes. Now either God's blind, which he isn't, or God is merciful, compassionate, full of grace, and here's the critical piece, weighing the men and their hearts and the women and their hearts on a different scale than what we see. That's what's going on. That's how God can honestly say, David was after my heart. The question is this, A, is your heart after God? And B, are you living into that heart after God? You don't have to keep being undermined in your culture. You can do something about your context, your family, your business, your church, your scenario. It will take wisdom. You can also quit undermining people who are in leadership. You can stop today doing that. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, are amazed at the stories, the things that you did, the uh, words that you said. And for sure, these narratives that are built all through the Old Testament are there for us to learn. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that, Hebrews 11, so that we can learn and make adjustments and so that we can see you at work. You are always the great lemonade maker. You take all those lemons and you make the lemonade and and Israel was your people. And from that line of that great King David came the true Messiah, Jesus. Thank you for uh, providing this hope for us and the warnings and the encouragements. And uh, we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the team's going to come and the ushers are going to come. We receive an offering here if you'd like to worship God in that way. I'm so grateful. Jim mentions this on a regular basis, how uh, uh, generous we are as a congregation. You are as a congregation. Thank you for your participation in the ministry. And then we'll uh, follow up with communion immediately after that.